so uh, I really dig and, uh, pardon the metaphor, uh, I really enjoy uh, thinking about using different tools. You know, I, I, I try, I have, there's a lot of different things that I do in my life or that I have done in my life, and I employ a lot of different tools or have employed a lot of different tools to accomplish them. Uh, guitars to me are simply tools to use to express music. You know, uh, pedals that, that, that I used to step on and still do when I play. Um, all of these things are tools. And tools to me are really just anything that makes a human being do something a little bit better or a little bit more than they could do otherwise. And um, I just really invest a lot of thought and try to choose my tools fairly carefully. Uh, I try to know exactly why I'm using a, diff a certain tool because uh, I want to accomplish a certain thing, a certain idea. And so the, some of the tools in my life that are important to me, if you know me at all, you know that pens are very, very important to me. They're important tools. It's just a device that allows me to communicate an idea. But the way that I'm wired up, I just happen to give a lot of thought and I'm picky about my pens. If you take one from me, I will notice. <laughs> They're not expensive, by the way. Like this is not more than, you know, a buck with a 69 cent refill or something in it like that. But the point being, uh, this is a device that allows me to accomplish something in, in my life. And I happen to just be fairly selective and intentional about what, about, uh, what I use. Same thing with, with paper. You know, this is my journal, and, and I notice the way paper feels to me when I write, and I notice whether it bleeds through, and so I make very intentional, selective choices about the paper that I employ, but it's just a tool. That's what tools do. They make us and help us do things. Anything could be a tool, right? A computer. doesn't have to be like a, a physical thing, uh, a software application, you know, some kind of system that you use at work, anything that helps you accomplish something or make you do something a little bit better, a little bit easier, that is a tool. The thing about tools is that um, as they are produced and developed and used, many times they can, uh, they can involve something called feature creep. Anybody ever heard the phrase feature creep? Kind of comes a little bit, first time I heard, heard about it was a little bit more in software engineering, you know. And what, what feature creep looks like is that somebody produces a tool that is useful to, to a customer. And somebody gets it and they're like, man, this is great. And then they tell the company or the developers or the people behind it, they say, hey, this was great. You know what would make it even better? And so a lot of times what people do is they hear that feedback and they're like, well, let's make it better. Let's throw something else in there. And what happens is that you have a tool that might start off like something simple, you know, like a shovel, um, but then someone will be like, oh, man, we got to add stuff to this and add stuff to this. And it starts getting more and more bloated, right? So let me show you what this looks like. If anybody you, got, anybody you guys have ever used a word processor, Microsoft Word, it is what? It's a, it's a software application that lets you simply write down ideas. This is what feature creep looks like in Microsoft Word. This is every, every menu option made visible in Microsoft Word. 
And if you see right down there in the lower right-hand corner, that's what's left in terms of space to type. Now keep in mind, the original goal of the tool of Microsoft Word is for you to type ideas out. But feature creep can start to be like, well, let's put this in, and let's put that in, and let's put this in. And pretty soon, the original intent for the tool is like just a little bitty part of, of the, what's visible. Here's another example. Um, so, you know, I, a lot of you guys know I carry a pocket, pocket knife. A lot of us carry a pocket knife. Mine has this one single blade on it. That's all it has. It folds up and puts in my pocket. Maybe you have a knife that's got two blades. Maybe you've seen a Swiss Army knife, right? But, so a knife is just a tool for, for cutting things. It's helpful. This is what feature creep looks like in a Swiss Army knife. <laughs> so, let me, be, let me be clear. This is actually not a, pro, a, a product that they sell. This is actually, look, they just said, hey, this is what a Swiss Army knife would look like with every option picked. But the thing about feature creep is what, is what it does is it begins to obscure and cloud the original intent of the tool. Like, where is the blade in that thing? The original, point, uh, uh, the original intent of a knife is to cut something. You can't see the thing anymore. That's feature creep. And it obscures the original intent of tools. Now, uh, I have these shovels up here for a couple different reasons. But the thing that struck me this week is a shovel has been refreshingly immune from feature creep. Like a shovel is a shovel. Uh, they come in different sizes, slightly different shapes, you know, slightly different purposes. You got snow shovels, you got different, but they all have vaguely the same shape with a handle and, a, and an end. And what's more is that shovels really haven't changed that much over time. This is how I spend my week sometimes. Let me show you a picture of a shovel uh, that, that is really, really old. This, I think, might be the oldest shovel in, in the North America. Don't ask how I know that. But um, it's, it's from about 1770. But it still looks very shovel-ish, does it not? It doesn't look a whole lot different than this. Not a whole lot of feature creep in a shovel. It is a tool that has maintained its focus and its purpose. Now, at the other end of feature creep is a concept called minimalism. Anybody ever heard this phrase, minimalism? Uh, it, it comes out of multiple different disciplines. You can apply it to design. You can apply it to music. You can apply it to software design. Um, and let me show you a definition of what minimalism is. It is a style or technique, music, literature, design, that is characterized by extreme spareness or sparseness and simplicity. So in, in, in one sense, you know, the shovel is an example of minimal design. It's got a handle, it's got the spade, that's it. Now, again, to uh, just draw out the contrast a little bit, um, there is something called maximalism that stands at the other end of the spectrum from minimalism. Let me show you a picture of a, uh, a room that has experienced feature creep and maximalism. So there's a lot going on in this room. How many paintings? I couldn't even tell you. There's flowers, there's pillows, there's a statue of some guy over the, over the fireplace. This is a maximalist room. 
This is a minimalist room. You see, like minimalism and feature creep are related because minimalism would say the purpose of this room is for people to sit and talk to each other. That's what the tool of the room is. So minimalism just tries to remove all of the distractions, all of the features that have crept into life and just say, hey, this is the thing that is the thing. Here's another example of, uh, of something that has experienced some feature creep. How about a chair? It's got LED lights, <laughs> hidden compartments, two drink holders. It might have the massaging magic fingers in it. I don't even know. This is an example of a chair that's just, man, like, hey, let's put this in the chair. Let's put this in the chair. Let me show you an example of a minimalist chair. This is the other extreme. This chair is designed to do one thing, and that is to hold your behind. There's no other features that are put into it. Feature creep, maximalism, can creep into tools. So much so that they, they be, can begin to cloud and obscure their original intent and their original purpose. And the reason I start us off this way is because this whole series that we're going to en engage in, these 12 weeks that we're going to spend together, are based on the idea that uh, religion, and faith, and spirituality is a tool that's been given to us that has experienced feature creep. And what I wanted to do is start off with this question, the idea and the question being, what is religion and spirituality for? What is the essential nature of the tool that it is? Now, now when I say tool, you understand that that is not any way belittling the idea of faith. Like, that is a, a tool is a valuable thing. A tool, remember, a tool allows me to do more as a human being than I could otherwise do. So what is, what is the thing that allows me to do more in regards to faith? You know, anybody ever hear the, hear the phrase like, hey, if all you have is a hammer, everything kind of looks like a nail, right? Well, what is religion and spirituality for? Because if it's a tool that we've been given, and if maybe we've experienced some feature creep, we might want to get really, really clear on the essential nature of faith. So when I say things like feature creep, let me just tell you the story as I see it. You see, our faith, our spirituality, our religion was based on a guy named Jesus who, who walked around what is modern-day Palestine and in that area and he walked around and taught people. He was a rabbi and a healer and a teacher and a prophet. And his life was simple. He had like one outfit, a pair of sandals. And he walked around and he taught and he helped people. And he had a small, small band of followers. A really small inner circle of people. And that was a pretty simple idea. Pretty simple idea. God loves you. You should have compassion on your neighbor. Then he is he's executed, he's, he's tortured uh, and executed by the state. He, he comes back to life. Now, and then he uh, empowers 
God empowers some of his first followers then to carry that message forward. But look, we're 2,000 years into this thing. You don't think a little feature creep has crept into the church? You don't think that maybe over time people have sort of added stuff in to say, hey, look, we understand this thing about love and compassion. Maybe we should add this thing in too. You know, so as I was thinking about it, in my opinion, like some of the more troubling ideas of feature creep that have come into faith is like, look, you know what? Let's add this feature into faith. Let's make sure that, uh, that the church can tell us who the good people are and who the bad people are, who's in and who's out, who looks like us and thinks like us and who doesn't. Let's add it in. But it clouds the original intent and purpose of the tool. So it might also say, you know, let's, uh, let's make sure that the church and that faith and spirituality tells us who you vote for. Tells us who your, what your political agenda is. That's feature creep. And so what I wanted to do, and the idea that, 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 started gotten, that got planted in my head about a year ago, was what would happen if we spent 12 weeks and we just said, let's strip away all the feature creep of our faith. And let's get at the essentials of why we have this tool in our midst in the first place. What would happen if we got rid of the feature creep of faith and we just said, you know what, you can boil this whole thing down to 12 words and 12 concepts, and it's that simple. And if you live out these 12 words and these 12 concepts and you let them into your life, well, then I think crazy, unbelievable, powerful things can happen. So we're gonna do that. We're going to spend this week and the next 11 just looking at essential elements of spirituality. They're not going to be complicated. They won't be easy, but they won't be complicated. And so the, the first word that we're going to look at, the thing that starts the whole operation off is the word powerless. The word and the concept of being powerless. And everything is sort of built on this original idea of what it means to be powerless and what it means to also have appropriate view of the gifts that God has given us. Because when I say the word powerless, I think some of us come from a variety of different places in this room. Some of us might say, yeah, you know, I know what it means to be powerless. You know, I got no money. I got no car. I got no, you know, whatever. You might be in a place of life where you're just like, man, I get that. But I'm going to challenge you. Because you can have nothing in your bank account and yet still be addicted to power. And obviously, the flip side goes, too. You might be in a space where you're like, yeah, I get power. I have people that report to me. I have a lot of money in my bank account. I can snap my fingers or write a check and make just about anything I want to happen. What does this look like, Eric? Do I need to sell all my money and give, to the, give it all to the poor? And, and, and I think what you're going to find out is that the nuanced understanding of, of essential spirituality is simultaneously like much easier to understand than just like, hey, write a check and empty your bank account but also much more challenging. So what I want to do is walk us through what it means to be powerless and to start this journey of essential spirituality. And what I want to do is start with kind of the beginning story of the Bible and, and unpack something that, that 
became really, uh, just kind of jumped out at me about a year ago. I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, Genesis, the beginning book of the Bible, has actually two creation stories in it. We've talked about this occasionally here, but Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 tells the story of the creation of the universe and of everything, and it tells it in slightly different ways. And Genesis 1 is the more familiar to most of us. You know, God creates everything in six days. Let there be light. Let there be this. Let there be that. Seventh day, he rests. And then immediately following that story, Genesis 2 starts. And it's a slightly different description of how things start. But what I want to draw your attention to this morning is in particularly how it describes the creation of human beings. And we're going to start with Genesis 2 first. So, Genesis 2. God looks around at everything he's created, essentially. And then the scriptures say that he picks up some earth, some dirt. And he shapes it into the form of a human being. And then, the scriptures say that that dirt's just laying there and God, God, the creator of the universe leans over and breathes his breath into that dirt. And then, whew, here comes mankind. Here comes humanity. That's Genesis 2. It's a little bit humbling because guess what? Here's the truth of the matter. It. I'm, this, is a, this is a picture of my uh, ancestors. Do you see the resemblance? I and everybody in here come from dirt. We come from dirt. And the only reason we have breath and the only reason I'm speaking to you now and, and that we have anything is because God bent over and breathed into that dirt. Now, Genesis 1 is different. Genesis 1 on the sixth day, sort of the apex of creation, God creates human beings, just kind of, a, he, said, he said, we need some people here that look like us, and then it just says, God made them, man and woman, bam, here we are, we just appear, and then God says, okay, you're here, now let me give you a job to do, see all these crazy animals I've, I've uh, created, name them, and so we're created spontaneously and then instantly given tremendous power and authority God says, name everything. Be fruitful and multiply. So you have these two contrasts. Genesis 1, you, he, we appear in our glory, so to speak, looking like God, and then instantly get like the job that God has just not had anybody else to do. He said, you know what? Name everything. And the text actually says, reign over this creation. Rule it. Very noble. Genesis 2, hey, psst, you're just a pile of dirt. You're just a pile of dirt. About a year ago, I read that some rabbis looked at this, and they say, you know why there's two creation stories? Because we need both aspects of our character. Because as human beings, we need to know that we're created to make things happen. We need, we, we need to know that God has created us to, to exert an influence on the world. Go out and name things. Be fruitful. Multiply. We need to know that. 
But the rabbis also said, ah, but also, no matter how much you go out and do stuff, no matter how many animals you name, never forget Genesis 2. You're just dirt. And it's this tension that we live in between uh, just being able to accomplish amazing things and the humility that, you know what? Without God's life force in me, I'm nothing. And so there's a tension between influence and nobility and power and authority and just the humble acknowledgement that we're just dirt. So when we start talking about, again, going back to this idea of tools, the way that we can in, uh, exert influence and authority and we, the way we can make things happen uh, in a Genesis 1 type of way is by using the tools that God gave us. And so we uh, have been gifted with different just different personality characteristics, different passions, different strengths, and we use all of those things to make a difference in the world, do we not? So we're passionate about seeing things happen, and maybe we are just gifted with a certain amount of resources or a certain amount of intelligence or natural personality, and so we can like dig in to the world that God has given us, and we can say, hey, this is my tool, my personality, my strengths, and I can make things happen. I can move stuff around. I can impact my world, and I can make things happen. This is the, the tools that we've been given. And we use the tools to change the world because Genesis 1 says, God says, go out, do those things. I've given you that stuff. But, but... There's more to life than just using the tools to change the world because God also says, don't ever forget about the Genesis 2 part. And let me unpack kind of uh, what this starts to look like. So you have this implement that allows you to shape your world and to move the things around in it that God has called you. But if you lose sight of Genesis 2, and if you just keep on focusing on making an impact and working and using the tools that God gives you, sometimes what can start to happen is that you get a little tired or you just get a little bit into the rut of this is all I do, I just move stuff. And then what can happen is actually the very tools that you have been given to make a difference in the world, they can actually start to work against you. Because if you lose sight of Genesis 2 and the humility, you're just dirt. You can fall into the trap of saying, this Genesis 1 life is going to make all the difference in the world, and that's all I ever have to live by. And let, me, let me tell you some stories of, of, of what this looks like. I have a friend who, uh, who has one of the best, uh, best work ethics I've ever, I've ever seen. You never invite, never invite this uh, friend over to do yard work with you because you will end up being humiliated. He will outwork you. 
You know, he will, he will out humility you. You will be like done with all the yard work and he'll still be going. That's his tool. God gave him a strong work ethic. And he used that tool to make a difference in his world. But you know what? He used that tool. And when that, if that tool just keeps being used without a balance of humility, it's only natural that pretty soon my friend started to understand that that tool actually made him very judgmental. Because he could look around really easily and go, I got a stronger work ethic than that person or that person and that person. And the very gift that God had given him to make an impact of the world started to make him sick inside because he just saw things through the filter of the tool. I work harder than everybody else. I have another friend uh, who was just so good at making people laugh. And, uh, and, and was just doing such a good job. He was like the clown, the class clown. And he could always uh, kind of bring just the room down around him with laughter. That was the gift that God had given him. But what, what happened with, with my friend is that he just kept using this tool throughout his life. And then at some point in his life, he, he began to realize that what he was using laughter for to cover up the fact that he was really ashamed of himself. And he had this gift that God had given him to make people like just erupt in joy. But it was making him sick inside. And it was a struggle to stop because this was the tool that he knew. So he just kept digging. You know, I'm just going to make people laugh and make people laugh. And then one day he finally had to say, I'm done. I'm done. There's more to my life than this tool. I have, uh, maybe you know somebody like this. Somebody who's been gifted with the ability to perform music, drama, whatever it is. Maybe you know somebody that's been blessed with the ability to, to use that tool in, in the confines and in the arena of church. And so the thing that they do is that they provide vehicles and environments where people experience God. And that's the tool that they were given. Skills of music, intuition, of art. But over time, as they just used that tool and they used that tool and they used that tool, what they began to realize was that, actually, um, I use this because if I stop performing, I'm terrified that nobody is going to like me. And so I better keep digging, even though it's making me sick, because I'm scared to death what will happen if I stop. Again, the tool that they were given by God, go out, make an impact on the world. But at some point, that tool turned toxic. So maybe you know somebody like that. Maybe that's your life where you would say, you know what, I get it. God gave me this ability to work hard, to make money, to relationally connect people. But there's another part of it. You're saying, but you know what, I've done this for so long, and there's a part of it now that feels like it's making me sick. And, and I 
I can't stop because it's what I know. But here's the deal. I, I know in a room like this, most of us are probably going like, hey, I wonder if the person to my left or to my right has that problem because I probably, I don't. And for those of you, just a reminder that denial is not just a river in Egypt. And so I just want to take a few moments and I want to ask you some questions that you can use as a diagnostic for yourself. Okay? Let's start off this way. Do you find yourself to be an irritable and blaming person? Is the problem always with those people? Are they the ones who have made you know, your life difficult. And if you could just like keep digging your hole, but these people keep making, they make it hard for you to get your stuff moved around. Well, maybe, maybe the issue is not necessarily with the other people. Maybe it is that you think power is the way to get the world to respond to you. Do you struggle with, uh, maybe you struggle with Thoughts of fear or anger or shame. And what you do is you keep shoveling and, and working and doing the things that you know how to do to protect yourself because if you stop doing them, you're afraid of what, what might happen. So you just keep, keep the plate spinning. But inside, you're fearful. Inside, you're angry at the world. Inside, you're maybe ashamed at what's deep in your heart. Do you have maybe, uh, if you look behind you in your life, you have a little bit of a trail of broken relationships. And you struggle with loneliness at a deep level. Maybe even isolation. Because here's the deal. Uh, if you really want to get confronted with what you can control and can't control, interact with another human being. Because we have, there's this strange thing that human beings just don't do what we want them to do, do they? And so a lot of us, rather than acknowledge that we not, cannot control another human being, we just break the relationship off and we go to another person. And then we end up feeling lonely and isolated. Next thing, again, fear and resentment. And if you, you, you tell yourself, look, I really resent my boss. I really resent my teachers. And if they could just leave me free to keep working, I could, I could make my world perfect. And every time somebody impinges on your ability to make your world perfect and to control it perfectly, you get angry. And you're also afraid at the same time of what would happen if your world wasn't perfect. Next thing, there's things you just cannot stop. There's just things you cannot stop. Maybe at some point in your life, in order to keep your world in control, you realize that you could control your world through alcohol, Drugs, pornography, eating, 
relationship after relationship after relationship. And somewhere along the way, you started to realize that that is making me sick. And yet, if you were honest with somebody, you're like, I can't stop. I cannot stop it. Is there any activity out there that you know is not good for you? And you're like, you know what? I can't stop. Honest. Next thing. Have you ever taken a geographical cure? Have you ever gotten to the point where you're just like, you know what? I've got a problem with relationships. I've broken things. Things are breaking here. Uh, I don't like my job. And, and, and my control of the world is, is being threatened. But you know what I'll do? I'll move to Jacksonville. Because that will fix everything. And the only problem is about a week or two, or maybe it's less, or maybe it's longer, after you move to Jacksonville, what comes walking through the door? But the same thing that you left behind. Have you ever just tried to run away from something? And you're like, man, clean slate, that'll do it. The only problem is problems have a way of finding you. Like they're better than find your friends on iPhone, you know? Like they just, bam, they just know where you are because wherever you go, there you are. All right, a couple more things. Controlling situations and or people. You think you have a problem with power in the world? Just think about whether you can let your spouse or your son or daughter or your friends think about whether they can make their own decisions and you'll love them either way. I mean, I'm a father, right? So this hits me hard. My daughter makes a decision and I'm like... Can you just sit back and let the people you love be their own human beings? Or do you reach like, no, 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 I've got it. No, no, we're not having this. This, all right? Last one. Are you preoccupied with your self-image? And you're like, no matter what happens, nobody is going to see less than perfect version of me. And so, so to do that, I gotta, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shovel. I'm going to make sure that every, everything, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to have the biggest work ethic. I'm going to play the best guitar. I'm going to just be there before anybody else shows up in, in the office. Because, oh my gosh, what would happen if they see me as less than perfect? Any of these things tick off anything with you? Let me suggest to you that, that powerless might be a bigger theme in your life than what you think. And we're just not designed for it now so guess what there's good news because what is spirituality and faith for what is it for if we've experienced all this feature creep what might it actually be for what is the tool that is given to us in faith and religion and church and spirituality well, let me, let me tell you what I think it is. Luckily, Jesus himself gives us the answer because in John chapter 10, he is talking to some people and he says, look, the thief, which you can understand as the devil or evil or just the world and the way it is, life comes to steal and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come to give you what? And life to the full. So you want to ask me what 
what spirituality and religion and faith are for. It's to give me life. It's to give me life. And what I need to do, and I'm going to speak to you guys just real second, because some of us, we hear that, oh, oh, it's life. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to work my butt off at this spirituality thing. I'm going to be a growth group leader, and I'm going to serve coffee, and I'm going to love on kids and eat three kids, and I'm going to do all the things that, that tick off all the things because I can control that. That's my power. That ain't the way you get life. That just keeps you digging a hole. And spiritual control can turn just as toxic because that can just turn into pride and judgmentalism. Oh, I heard that person's prayer, and it was not quite as good as my prayer. You know, I, I noticed that that person's not as honest and as, as authentic as I am in my growth group. Pride and judgmentalism. We can use spirituality to hide just as well as we can use anything else. So what's the solution? If it's not working, if it's not digging, what's the solution? Well, Mar, uh, in, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus comes on the scene. And he starts talking to his disciples. It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The good news of God. And he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the what? Good news. Not the bad news, not the okay news. It's the good news. So if you grew up in church, you know, and you spent time around people with of faith, like you hear, you see that word repent and instantly, I always used to think of like the, the you know, the, the fire and brimstone preachers that are yelling, telling me I got to get my life right. Repent or God's going to smash you like a bug. The biblical vision of repentance is so much more practical and helpful to us people. The Greek word for repent is the word metanoia. It's two Greek words that are put together. Meta means change. Or renew, noia means mind. So Jesus comes on the, on the scene and he says, look, the kingdom is here. Change your mind and believe. Change the way that you think about the world and believe. And for our purposes today, I would just say it this way. Look, we think that this is the way the world works, that you know what, I move stuff and I achieve and I do things and that's what brings me life and Jesus is saying, oh, actually, you know what? You can do that all you want and do it because God gave you gifts for a purpose. But life, you have to change the way you think about life because it don't work the way you think it does. You don't get life by working harder. That's not good news. I don't know about you guys, I don't think it'd be good news if Jesus is like, hey, Eric, get up even earlier and work even harder. Isn't that good news? No, Jesus, it's not. <laughs> it's not easy because this, this is the way Jesus puts it in Mark 8. Jesus calls the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he says, look, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Then he goes on to say, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life, save it. In Luke 9, he puts it this way. 
What good is it for, uh, let's go to Luke 9. He says to everybody, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. And then he adds this, take up their cross, what? Daily. And follow me. And then he goes on to say the same thing again. If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you want to lose your life, for me, we'll save it. Then he adds, like, look, what good is it for you to gain the whole world, for you to move all this stuff around and to save your soul? Here's what Jesus is getting at. Look, remember what the cross is. The cross is the place of death, which is the ultimate declaration of powerlessness. It's the ultimate place of surrender. As I, as I was brought up to here, look, the death rate's still right around 100%. Some of, sometime, we're all going to be called to that moment of ultimate powerlessness, surrender. And Jesus says, you know, actually, that's where life is. It's not about digging and harder. Yes, use your gifts, but don't think that, that Jesus came to say, look, if you just work a little bit harder, that that toxicity can just remain. Jesus says, no, just stop. Just stop. My man, Jeff Tweedy from the band Wilco, he, he put it this way. He said, you gotta lose. You gotta learn how to die if you wanna be alive. You gotta lose. You gotta surrender. Powerless is part of the deal. Every day, Jesus says. Every day, just admit, man, I'm powerless today. So as we kind of wrap up, let me put just a couple fine points on it. Life is not about digging a hole deeper. Look, everybody, I dug my hole deeper than anybody else. It's not about digging the hole faster than anybody else. Look, I finished my hole already, Jesus. It's not about uh, showing everybody how hard you work at your uh, digging. It's not about digging a better hole or a hole with more style. Did you see how stylistic my hole was? It was a perfect square. The digging doesn't get you to life. It helps you do things in the world. And don't ever think that it's not necessary, but it does not bring you to the life that Jesus is offering you. Ultimately, life happens when you actually stop digging. You go, I'm done. This hole's not getting any deeper, Jesus. I'm done. I surrender. I'm powerless. So, let me ask you a couple questions. Are you tired of digging? Have you dug, maybe it's not just one hole, have you dug holes all your life and you're like, you know what, actually, not only am I tired, but I think this digging is making me sick. Are you tired of it? Have you had enough? Are you ready to release control and to say, I am powerless, and that's okay? I've spent all my life, maybe it's 18, 20, 30, 40 years, I've spent 40 years controlling my world, and it just keeps not working. Maybe it's just time to say, you know what? I can't control it. Never could, never will. And that's okay. What's it costing you? Maybe I should ask your friends or your family. What's it costing you to keep on controlling your world? 
And what would it cost you to just take your hands off it and go, I surrender it. God's given me these gifts and I'm going to use them, but I'm also not going to trust them to get me to life because life just comes when I say, I'm powerless. I'm powerless. I can't control other people. I can't control my boss. I can't control the drivers on Capitol Circle. And that's okay. Because there's a God, and he says, that's not your job anyway. So the band's going to play. And what I wanted to do with this series is give us a couple real tangible ways to respond. First way is obviously in a growth group. If, if, if you uh, need to get involved in a group of people who are going to be processing this stuff, man, just check the Pathways booth or our website. But the other way I want to do it is just give folks every, every Sunday an opportunity to kind of literally write something down with, with a pen and, and on a piece of foam, foam board that just says, here's, here's where I'm at today. Here's where I'm at today. And so... Uh, they're going to play, and this is just going to be up here. Some folks from this morning have already started uh, the journey. And, and maybe you just kind of uh, ask yourself or fill in just to make it easy. Maybe you just need to write somewhere on here. Just write, I surrender. I'm done. I'm done digging to try and make life controllable. Maybe you need to name a specific person or thing or, or a situation. I release my job. I've tried to control every aspect of my vocational life and I'm just, I release it. Or maybe you say I release my, my, my parents or my, my children or my sibling or my friend. I release them because I can't control them. Maybe you just write a name. You don't have to write anything else, just the name of the person or the situation that's just on you this morning. So I'm going to start off. I'm, I'm going to lead uh, again. And then uh, there's going to be pens up here, and, and they're just going to play. So just this is kind of like what we do communion. Just if God puts something on your heart, just come up and write, write down what you need to write down. Let it start today.